Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delvar Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at AEI, and... Yulia Zoza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Thea Dunlevy, um, a senior analyst at the Center for Maritime Strategy. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Uh, I should say about Thea that she's not only a senior analyst uh, with, with the Center for Maritime Strategy, but she's also an alumnus of AEI, so a second alumnus in, in, in two weeks. I'm after Radek Sikorsky, who is another esteemed figure emerging from, from our ranks. And not, not only that, she was also uh, very directly involved in the production and, and, and work behind, behind this podcast uh, since its inception. So it's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure to, to have, you, have you back. And the reason we invited you is that you authored back in June uh, a rather prescient piece that looks at the security situation in the Black Sea region which has this title of, of anticipating the next Black Sea shipping crisis. And, and, and the timing of, of this podcast has been rather fortuitous because we are recording it on the 17th of July uh, at the time when Russia just announced that it was withdrawing from the, from the grain deal. Now, your piece was very granular in its focus on one aspect of, 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 of security in the Black Sea region, namely sort of cyber side of things and, 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 and the prospect of Russian cyber attacks targeting Ukrainian ports and, and, and the sort of shipping industry in the region more, more broadly. So why do you think this particular element of the story, which hasn't been as widely reported on and talked about uh, matters. Well, thank you so much, Dalibor. I should mention the most important job I've had is being Dalibor's research assistant. So I have to mention that for sure, in addition to working on the Eastern Front. So this is my favorite podcast, and I'm really grateful to be here. And also to share a little bit about why I think cyber is important. The reason that I started looking into this domain in the conflict, particularly in the Black Sea, is because I started to notice a trend of cyber attacks against Northern European ports. And these Northern European ports, in part, these cyber attacks have been deliberate and political and retaliatory for these countries owning the ports support for Ukraine. So for example, just this year, a couple of months ago, there was attributed GRU Russian cyber attack against the port of Rotterdam. And analysts attribute this attack as retaliation for the Netherlands support and want to purchase Swiss tanks for Ukraine. And so there's a very clear precedent of Russia using cyber as one of its many tools to not only attack Ukraine, but also to punish allies supporting Ukraine. So that's how I first came to start looking at maritime infrastructure and its role in the conflict. But in the Black Sea, it's particularly interesting because there's only about eight allied ports that have cobbled together a strategy and a system which has had its faults, but been very impressive in importing and exporting Ukrainian grain, despite all of the Russian blockades, Russian missile strikes against commercial vessels, 
mines in the Black Sea, rising insurance rates, and all the other threats to commercial vessels that would normally export Ukrainian grain. So these particular ports demonstrate that the supply chain is already very strained. There's very few targets, and we've seen Russia's willingness and capability to target allied maritime infrastructure in order to disrupt their export efforts. So my argument essentially is why then would we not expect to see more Russian cyber attacks against allied maritime infrastructure when Russia's interest in the Black Sea has been known for hundreds of years? Russians, Russia's willingness to give up is not present. Russia's willingness to continue to impact Ukrainian exports, which account its agricultural exports account for about 40% of its entire exports. So it's a very deliberate target to cripple the Ukrainian economy. So why then would they not choose this strategy of disruption? And we look to the example of the Suez Canal, when a ship got stuck and we got a lot of great memes out of it. Um, we also learned that a week of blockage in the Suez Canal can cost between six to $10 billion to the global economy. So this isn't just an issue for Black Sea analysts. This is an issue that also the United States needs to be looking at, that every country needs to be looking at, especially in the context of the NotPetya attack in 2017, which is how I begin this case study, essentially, was where this attack was proliferated through the maritime domain. And while we do talk about cyber attacks, we don't often talk about cyber proliferating in the maritime domain. And so that's really my focus here, is to remember the lessons of NotPetya in 2017 and to find ways, looking at existing models, such as the Port of Los Angeles, which has a really impressive intelligence sharing uh, unit, how we could look at those kinds of examples for strengthening cybersecurity and resilience, therefore supply chains um, resilience, and also just security in the Black Sea generally. To look to some of those examples to see how we can support Ukraine, Ukrainian allies through strengthening cybersecurity. Before we talk about the specifics of the Black Sea, which I very much want to do, I'd like to query you about if you've done, it's interesting that you started your research by seeing a pattern of attacks on Northern European ports. I guess I would say that or my impression still is that everybody prior to the war was expecting cyber attacks to play a larger role in Russian strategy. And it's been kind of considered a dog that hasn't barked. But I'm just wondering whether there's barking going on that we haven't paid attention to or haven't heard. And your um, uh, your anecdotes suggest that that may be true. Do you have any insights on that that you can share? Yes, I think we can be grateful that it is the dog that hasn't barked in the same way that we've expected. But at the same time, if we look at these trends, we see direct attribution to Russian GRU agents. And so, for example, going back to the NotPetya uh, attack in 2017, not only did the U.S. Department of Justice indict GRU members for initiating that attack, but also in the more recent attacks in 2022 and 2023, we've seen those attacks against northern European ports attributed to Russian GRU agents as well. Um, and it's not only governments that are coming out and saying this, but also these cyber experts like Microsoft, which are doing independent research and verifying. And so, for example, they recently uncovered another campaign that was specifically targeting NATO members and also able to attribute that 
to Russian GRU agents. So the pattern is very, very clear. And my understanding of the cybersecurity world is they're very, very, very hesitant to attribute unless there's an absolute preponderance of evidence. Um, and so this trend, I think, is quite clear, but is not talked about a lot, perhaps because uh, Ukrainian cybersecurity is strong. Um, Ukraine has a very digitalized society. For example, they have a DIA app, which has their passport, economic information, health information, all on one app. Um, and some could see that as a vulnerability, but Ukraine has risen to the challenge to become a digitalized nation and a democratized nation, and they prioritize cybersecurity accordingly. But my next concern is now with today's news about the grain deal is now we're seeing a smaller number of ports that are going to be exporting the grain, and that means the supply chain is strained even further. So should one of those three Ukrainian Danube ports, where more of the burden will fall to, should they suffer a cyber attack, how do we respond? Because shippers in the Black Sea are already losing millions of dollars. They're reporting this every week because of the disruptions. It's not profitable, it's destructive to their companies to continue the shipping while such um, destructive actions on go. And you mentioned the dog that doesn't bark, but last year, several of NATO's assistant secretaries came out and said that actually cyber has been one of the strongest parts of Russia's campaign. Just because of in the early parts of the war, the Viasat hack, for example, was launched and accompanied Russia's conventional invasion. So there is a precedent of Russia pairing conventional and unconventional. Okay, Taya, you have used a lot of expert language and referred to case studies that not even august experts such as moi are necessarily uh, <laughs> familiar with. So either don't do that again, but also please walk us through the particulars you're talking about. I'm sure they'd be illustrative and instructive to us dummies. Sure. So the 2022 case particularly targeted satellites. So it targeted um, command and control and communi communications capabilities within the Ukrainian military. And talking about satellites, SpaceX has also been very concerned about attacks because SpaceX is providing terminals and satellite capabilities to the Ukrainian military. And so that's just one example in the communication sphere of how Russia is intentionally disrupting Ukrainian operations. And as I was preparing and I was reading the experts, I, I myself am a young analyst, but I can repeat what they have been writing, which is that the key word is disruption. That is the key word that you can highlight in every study that I've been reading. And Russia is an expert at disrupting. And they found very successful ways to do that in the cyber realm as well. And while we haven't seen the cyber blitzkrieg, as Dr. Jason Blessing put it at AEI, that doesn't mean that smaller cyber attacks can't have devastating impacts, especially when it comes to the Black Sea. So looking outside of the Black Sea, earlier this year, there was a cyber attack against a northern European shipping company, and that stalled many cargo vessels, and they had to hold in place essentially early in the year. And if we think about a sensation like that occurring in the Black Sea, where there's already, if you look at marinetraffic.com, for example, and you look at the clusters of ships, it doesn't take any expertise to notice that there's already a tremendous amount of backlog, and also listening to the complaints of the ship 
shippers themselves who are dealing with high insurance rates, who are navigating mines, navigating changing geopolitical situations like today with the grain deal ending. There's so much uncertainty and disruption, and that discourages private industry from wanting to participate in this process, and it requires greater action from governments. So for example, USAID, the United States has been very supportive in bolstering infrastructure in the Danubian ports, which is fantastic. And perhaps this is also an opportunity then to look at the cyber domain and consider risks there. These are smaller ports that aren't used to carrying as much cargo or facilitating as many exports as, say, the Romanian port or Bulgarian port that I reference normally could carry. So I mention all of this to say it doesn't take an expert to be able to read the recent stories and to see the patterns um, that Russia is very intentional with the tools that it uses and as its supply chains are crimped, as it's not able to develop missiles or conventional weaponry, as they're not able to do that quite as readily and quite as quickly, then we should expect them to turn to their toolkit, where cyber has been a very strong, pronounced, and devastating tool that they've been able to employ before. We knew this was coming. (laughs) So you're kind of zooming in and zooming out of the Black Sea, and I want to zoom in now. (laughs) And I want to ask you in detail about the exact cost of Russia's cyber aggression, differentiating between Ukraine on the one hand, Ukrainian ports particularly, but not only because it's not just ports um, that are affected by cyber attacks in this maritime realm, but also allies. Um, You just mentioned and you illustrate that in your piece, how Russia is compensating or increasingly using the strategy of compensating for limited conventional military means and in the context of allies also the inability to attack conventionally with digital cyber means. And so I know that we have trouble oftentimes attributing when it comes to cyber and that limits our assessment of the costs of of cyber conflict. But if based on what you've know what you know and what you've researched, if you're looking at the one hand Ukraine since February 2022 and on the other hand other allies particular in the Black Sea region, particularly you just mentioned Romania and Bulgaria, how would you assess the cost um, that they have been bearing and the consequences of Russia's cyber aggression? Sure. So Russian cyber aggression, it is my hope, the reason that we don't hear as much about these attacks as we do on northern European ports is that they're being prevented and that they're being blocked. That's the best case scenario. But the worst case scenario is there's smaller attacks that are not being reported on widely. And that's just a problem generally um, that I've found in the maritime space is cybersecurity, unless it's a really substantial attack that prevents, for example, the cyber attack on the Marinette shipyard in the United States just a few months ago that prevented us building the next generation of naval vessels. Unless it rises to that level, unfortunately, we just don't hear about it. So it's a difficult it's a difficult question to answer. But more of my concern within the article is the future consequences, because we've already seen the the devastation in the Black Sea. We've already seen that vessels carrying grain to go to starving children in Yemen or pick a country. Those have already been delayed because of not only Russia's very intentionally crafted 
um, and negotiated Black Sea Grain Initiative, where it only lets a few ships a day through and is very controlling of that process. But through its conventional mechanisms, like launching missiles that hit commercial vessels, um, these are very intentional intentional not only warning signs to allies that if you get involved in this conflict, this is a risk that could occur to one of your own vessels, but it's also, it's just a direct message to Ukraine as well. So I don't think I can give you an exact number, but I can, based on the history and based on the precedent that we're seeing, I can say with great certainty, this is a strategy that Russia knows works well. It disrupts successfully. So, so I was going to sort of extend Yulia's question in a, in, in a way and, and was going to ask you to help us think about how the West at large should be responding to these forms of warfare that are targeting Ukraine specifically, but have repercussions way beyond Ukraine and also sort of asymmetric in, 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 in nature. I mean, these are, these are things that, you know, we can't just say we should like rely on the Ukrainians to strengthen their own cyber defenses and to be able to thwart every attack that happens because there are these sort of external effects. Like if, if shipments of grain don't arrive in Africa, you know, that has all kinds of ramifications, including for the security of, you know, the southern flank of, of Europe and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so I guess like building resilience and strengthening the sort of cyber capabilities of, of, of these ports and shipping companies and, 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 and all the underlying infrastructure is, is part of the story. But, but surely there is an element of the story that has to do with us responding sort of proactively and, and punishing Russians for, for doing stuff like this. So, so how do you think about sort of escalation in a way uh, in, 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 in this context? How, how do we sort of impose costs on the Russians for doing these kinds of things? Well, I'm very glad that we abide by the laws of war and we will not, in tit-for-tet fashion, um, launch a missile at one of their commercial vessels, which is how Russia tends to play the game. But I think more of the emphasis of my article would be on prevention. And one way of doing that is through entering into intelligence sharing agreements, which several of these countries, these Black Sea nations, already have intelligence sharing agreements with maybe one of the other, maybe two to three, but there's not one that includes all of the Black Sea allied nations. And I think this is really important, even if you look to countries like Turkey or maybe Bulgaria that get a bit of more flack in NATO for being a bit more on Russia's side. Even so, they've been recipients of cyber attacks um, against their own maritime infrastructure in the past, which is documented, and they're able to share intelligence with Ukraine, other allied nations, that would be important. Another thing that we can consider is coordination with Northern European ports. So for example, after the attack on Rotterdam, the port of Rotterdam, which I mentioned, which is believed to be retaliation by the GRU against the Netherlands wanting to send Swiss tanks to Ukraine, they actually considered this information sharing model of the port of Los Angeles, which reportedly defends against 30 million cyber attacks every single month. Um, So if we could look to a really effective model that would be it. And it coordinates among the various companies and various operators in the port. So there's a couple of options here. There's room for coordination across the Atlantic. There's room for coordination with United States cybersecurity experts who operate at American ports. There's operation to coordinate with Northern European ports, which have already suffered attacks from Russian GRU. And this intelligence is really important because, for example, the NotPetya attack was launched in part using tools leaked from the NSA. So the information that is shared between countries 
is extremely impactful. It's not just a talking point to say that countries should work together stronger. But given the escalation and the increasing number of these attacks, it wouldn't be imposing a cost to share intelligence, but it would be a very effective way of making sure that all countries are aware of the current tools that are being used by the Russian government and by third-party affiliates. When it comes to costs, I think that might require a bit of a more unified strategy. And if I may, we're about 17 days overdue for a Black Sea strategy. And so that would require coordination among allies to discuss what those costs would look like. I don't think I can outline them unless we have a strategy that outlines the ways, ends, means of what are the objectives, what are the tools that allied nations have that they can provide without that kind of framework. I think it'd be very difficult to assess what kind of one-off penalties we could apply. Let me ask you one more thing about cyber, Black Sea, but also at the NATO level. So from what I understood last year when the full-scale invasion started, there were only two or so NATO countries that had a legal framework that would enable something called offensive measures in response to attributed cyber attacks against them. So say... The Russian GRU attacks a NATO member directly, and the NATO member can um, attribute that through cyber attacks, right? So it's been only at the full, at the moment of the full-scale invasion, only a few countries that were able to respond with offensive cyber attack measures based on such an attribution. And that created a major vulnerability because we now know that, and you detail that too, that before and after the full-scale invasion, it's been kind of a, a strategy of direct cyber attacks from Russia in probably more attribution that we know than we know at the public level. So now zooming into the Black Sea, a few months ago, last year, Romania had or modified or created and modified its cybersecurity strategy. And just a few weeks ago, a general from the intelligence community, Active, went publicly to do an interview with one of the most direct language I've ever seen coming out of that specific realm and country saying, we now, now, now have in place these retaliatory legal framework measures and watch for us, Russia and China. He names them for the first time. If you try to screw with us, we will come for you. And so um, this was a big shock in kind of the regional community Can you make sense of that? How necessary is that? How useful is that going forward in terms of creating the cooperation that you're referring to, but also in terms of creating deterrence in the cyber realm to prevent further cyber attacks from, for instance, Russia against um, NATO countries? That's exactly the word that came to mind when you were speaking was deterrence. The value of such a public statement like that where such operations honestly might be kept closer to the chests of the countries that are considering these offensive actions is very intentionally designed to signal to Russia Romania's capabilities and willingness to strike back. 
the United States as well during the war has been willing to strike back. And we've seen reports of various cyber attacks on Russian entities. And so I think that's important that Romania is joining in the fight very vocally with the United States, with other allied countries, and showing its capabilities, because Russia shows no reservation in using offensive cyber capabilities against civilian infrastructure. And so I think that's something that will be interesting to watch is to see the future of uh, essentially response or retaliation or cyber warfare against Russian entities and what kinds of entities are targeted. In the case of Russia, they'll very intentionally target civilian maritime infrastructure. In the case of the Romanian military, it might look a little bit different. It might be something like the the Viasat uh, attack in 2022 that targets more of the command and control and communications operations. I can't tell you what their plans are, but I definitely agree with you that deterrence is the main objective of a statement like that and showing willingness to defend. And it also elevates the importance of the cyber battlefield in the Black Sea which at the beginning was mentioned, that's not a conversation that's held very widely. So for example, I was at a think tank event about the Black Sea last week, and cyber's never mentioned at these types of events. And I think rightly so, Yulia, you're bringing cyber into the conversation by mentioning that this is one of the tools of the Romanian government. So really my my takeaway there would just be its deterrent value. I'd like to try to deconstruct this situation in regards to traditional definitions that govern the conduct of warfare. It does seem to me, it is certainly the case that the periodic missile attacks that the Russians conduct, even not only on Ukrainian shipping, or I mean, I don't really even have the list, but I do remember there was a Turkish vessel that was hit some time ago. Those seem to me to be unquestionably acts of war. And indeed, even these cyber attacks in that they are elements of what is a, a blockade, and now we see the blockade being renewed. I mean, that is fits the traditional definition of acts of war from time immemorial. So my question, and maybe this goes to, I'd be interested in your take about what the Black Sea strategy should be, and also like, where the heck is it in the bureaucratic process, and why is it delayed? But you can understand the reluctance to expand combat to a certain degree, but the failure to understand what the Russian intent is and what the, what the Russian purposes are, and to sort of segregate the cyber realm from other means of warfare seemed to me to be a dangerous specificity, even an error. So how come we can't see this as a pretty traditional act of war? My guess on that, well, first of all, I have to defer your question to Secretary Blinken about where's the Black Sea strategy, because he said it was coming in June. But to answer your question about um, the segregation of cyber warfare from traditional warfare is... From my understanding, it's just a very different strategic outlook on gray zone versus black and white warfare. And the United States has a much more delineated view of warfare than does Russia, who has become somewhat of an expert in the gray zone and operating below the threshold of war. Personally, it it seems quite easy to agree with you that these are acts of warfare that are targeting civilian... Oh, go on and do it then. Well, I can't tell you 
anything except this is just part of the Russian playbook that since the beginning of the war, they've targeted civilian infrastructure. And so far, the United States seems to still want to abide by the rules of warfare, as do our allied nations, which is something that we should celebrate is that we're not seeing retaliatory attacks in a, a similar fashion, but rather these are responses that we're going to have to formulate to Russian hybrid warfare and gray zone warfare, which from my understanding has been a struggle for decades, is trying to figure out how to respond appropriately to hybrid threats. And for example, there's been a lot of discussion about subsea warfare and targeting critical infrastructure, for example. And what do we do when we see a, a Russian vessel that's sniffing around a little bit too closely to subsea cables off the coast of Ireland, or if we see Chinese vessels that uh, accidentally hit some subsea cables and disconnect Taiwan from the internet, how on earth does the United States respond to that? That is a huge question that I don't have the answer to. But all I would say is that the war is highlighting the need to think about those questions and to categorize these different types of attacks accordingly. And what I've seen throughout my research is Russia's cyber, cyber attacks are being described as acts of war. That's common verbiage that I see. How the United States internalizes and responds to those acts, that's something that's probably classified and I, I couldn't tell you or know, but it is just a case study of where the United States does need a Black Sea strategy that is comprehensive and considering all of the various interests in the Black Sea, in addition to considering Russia's interests in the Black Sea, to where we can begin to think about and focus on those various threats and organize resources accordingly to respond to them. Can we at least say that considering the continuing nature of Russia's cyber attacks, that our deterrent efforts have been not fully successful? One could potentially argue that they could say that the conventional deterrence has been so strong that Russia is forced into the cyber domain, where perhaps cyber deterrence is not quite as strong. That might be how I would interpret it. But you could definitely make the argument. But this is also just part of Russia's playbook. It's going to keep launching cyber attacks against Sweden, for example, which is one of the most targeted countries in the world right now for obvious reasons because of its geopolitical and military interests. And so we shouldn't expect Russia to stop its cyber campaign. We shouldn't expect Russia to stop its cyber attacks. But I would agree that more moves like Romania's very vocal, very direct statement about its willingness to respond, those would be valuable in the deterrent efforts. Uh, I want to move also to or ask you uh, one thing in the conventional domain. You keep mentioning the Danube, and that's kind of a sub subdomain of the Black Sea that we tend were so far we haven't focused on at all. But I know that in your article and beyond that, with the research that you're doing, you are looking at maritime security from that angle as well. And Ukraine is on the Danube, at least the Danube Delta, with significant ports. Romania has major capacity um, and has been using its ports in the Danube and on the Black Sea to ship Ukrainian grain throughout the last one and a half years. Bulgaria also has access there and um, is increasingly looking at this. So if we're looking from sort of the conventional maritime perspective at the Danube and the Danube Delta, to what extent does it make sense for you beyond the digital, again, in the conventional area, to 
look at commercial expansion, uh, major investments that are increasingly being discussed, partially also being implemented, particularly around Romania, but also the idea of building more of a military presence in the Danube, and particularly the Danube Delta, that NATO has not been looking at at all, that I've been and very few others, unfortunately, advocating. We, we need more voices on that. And where we managed to escape, um, including possible escalation perception from Russia, right? Russia has no access to the Danube or the Danube Delta. So NATO could be building up its presence there, again, using it as deterrent and in aid of Ukraine. How do you look at these things? I think that's a fascinating proposal, and that's one that I haven't heard a lot about. I can say at the Center for Maritime Strategy, we're all about getting NATO back into the Black Sea. So certainly the idea of moving NATO closer to these strategic hotspots for logistics when it comes to shipping, that's certainly an attractive idea. And you're right that it does mitigate the Russian argument that they always make, which is this is escalatory, this is close to our you know, they would probably say this is too close to our Black Sea fleet. For example, they already make these complaints about NATO forces in the Mediterranean, constantly saying that this is escalatory, even though Russia has moved nuclear hypersonic assets into the Mediterranean, obviously, is the escalator in this capacity. When it comes to the Danube, that's an attractive idea. My one concern, I suppose, would be Turkey, which is Turkey and the Montreux Convention, and Turkey won't allow any warships to transit through the Bosphorus unless they're returning to a home port. So I suppose that could be a logistical difficulty if NATO assets were to be positioned in the Danube, near the Danube, um, that would rely on some negotiating with Turkey, who is a friend, um, but a tricky friend. So that might be my one concern there. But otherwise, I think it's it's a fantastic idea when it comes to defending critical infrastructure. This is critical infrastructure. And Ukraine cannot exist as a nation if it's not a maritime nation. If it loses all of its access to its ports, it cannot function. This is a 40% of its economy kind of question. This is a huge question for Ukraine. The idea of positioning NATO vessels there, though, when Ukraine is not yet a member of NATO, that's also a complicating factor that I imagine might make NATO allied countries a bit nervous, perhaps even even Turkey, especially Turkey or others. But I still do think it's a very attractive, attractive idea. If I, if I may just quiz you a little bit about the uh, politics of all this, because obviously uh, Ukraine has been the principal target of this and has been the main victim of this. But at the same time, as I said earlier, like this has re- ramifications beyond Ukraine, particularly in in Africa in terms of food security of, of, of the region. And one of the, like if you were to sort of draft a list of Russian successes in, in this war, it would be a very short list. But surely the fact that the global south, so to speak, has remained non-aligned and has tried to stay out of the war and not commit to any sanctions or, or sort of Western responses to, to Russian aggression has been on the list of, of these Russian successes. I wonder to what extent this Russian strategy of disrupting grain shipments and, and using this, this, this form of blackmail is self-defeating ultimately, and whether that provides an opening for the West to actually step up our outreach to, you know, say, South Africa, you know, Egypt, countries that 
might be able to sort of cope with food insecurity on their own, but would be still threatened by like sort of greater instability in, in, in Africa and large. I don't think we are doing quite enough of that, to be, to be frank, but maybe you are seeing things that, that I don't see. That's a really interesting angle of the conflict. And it sounds like a perfect opportunity for USAID to get more involved with the global South. But what I would say about Russia's relationship with some of these countries, so for example, Russian exports to Egypt, that's been a big problem. Egypt has received a lot of flack for receiving sanctioned vessels, for example, at its ports. But that really just shows the strength of Russia's relationship with some of these Middle Eastern and North African countries. And South Africa recently hosted naval drills with China and Russia, which is a pretty terrifying prospect and indicates where its eyes are at. When it comes to food security, I do think this is an opportunity for the United States to step up its aid as a form of diplomacy and as a form of re-engagement in the area. Dalibor, I'm sure you've written a piece about this, which I'll have to read, and I'm sure you have a better idea than I do, but that would be my gut instinct. I would say currently it doesn't seem like we're seeing a tremendous amount of cooperation from countries like Egypt. Um, We're even seeing Russian vessels off the coast of Greece, off the coast of Turkey, uh, Middle Eastern countries. So this is an ongoing geopolitical challenge that the United States and allies have with these countries. And so, for example, I wrote recently about the curious case of Bulgaria, which is a NATO member, but continues to receive shipments of Russian oil. Interestingly, exports them as diesel to Ukraine, which is quite a geopolitical quagmire. But this shows that countries do have deep economic ties with Russia that they're understandably reserved to let go because they're lifelines for their energy sector or for food um, when countries are experiencing drought. So it's an understandable connection, but it provides an opportunity for the United States to see what these countries' needs are and then to meet them or approach them more strongly. And my hope would be this would be an opportunity for turning points in some of these relationships. This strikes me as a sort of reasonably sort of constructive, if not uplifting note on which to wrap up. I know. It's like we've taught her nothing. Just just go on. You know. We can talk about some more cyber attacks if you'd like. Those aren't <laughs> well, you're even like moderate and reasonable in your prescriptions for what to do about those. <laughs> so, Dalibor, were you about to say it's a happy note, therefore it's time to stop? Before things get out of control. Thea, thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, and you, you can leave the Eastern Front, but the Eastern Front will never leave you. Well, I would not want it to. I'm glad that's the case. From me, Dalibor Rohaj. And me, Giselle Donnelly, and... Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. And don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.